Hey, it's John Heilman here, and I'm here with my friend. Will Leach, also here. Okay, well, you're not really here, Will. You're far away, but I'm here in New York City, and you're where? I'm in Mattoon, Illinois, my the, home, the small rural Illinois town. Illinois is basically Nebraska with Chicago at the top. Right. And I am from the Nebraska part. So that is where I am. I'm in my parents' uh, my parents' uh, kitchen uh, slash dining room as they are, try desperately to be quiet while I talk to my good friend, John Heilman. Awesome. It's the Leach. You're back in the Leach family seat. We're here uh, to record this today's edition, the new latest edition of the Culture Caucus, Bloomberg Politics's podcast that focuses on the intersection of politics and culture. Um, we're back we're on track. We're starting to do these again. I'm really excited about that. And um, we have had a, a we had a little lull. Then we came back. We talked about Colin Kaepernick, but that was a pretty big deal. It was great. Well, I thought that we did the Kaepernick uh, podcast and then were proven to have been right on the pulse of the intersection of politics and culture because the next week or the next day or shortly thereafter, Colin Kaepernick was on the cover of Time Magazine. That was pretty, like, prescient of us, don't you think? Yeah, you know, and that conversation, you know, Colin Kaepernick was, I mean, this guy played in the Super Bowl, but this is what he's going to be known for forever. It's been fun to watch. One of the things I thought would happen is what has happened, which rarely happens, which is uh, it's now, whatever your thoughts about Colin Kaepernick, who's yet to play a down, by the way, since all of this happened, uh, now everyone is having a conversation about that, and I think that's probably the goal. Right. Well, I'll tell you one thing that's true is that although that conversation has been very loud and very widespread, there is a new conversation that goes right to the intersection of politics and culture, and that's the conversation currently taking place around the first presidential debate, which is what we're going to talk about in this edition of Culture Caucus here at Bloomberg Politics. Hey, Will, where can you find this podcast, just out of curiosity? Well, you can find it currently right now. It's in your ears this very second. But for future reference, one is able to, you can subscribe on iTunes, give us a review on iTunes while you're there. It makes it a lot easier for people to find the the podcast. You can find us on uh, SoundCloud uh, and also, of course, on BloombergPolitics.com. All right. So my premise here, I'll tell you that I, I started my day today um, that thinking about you a little bit. One of the things I did early this morning after doing a little TV was I went on uh, Tony Kornheiser's podcast, which was excellent in every way, because as you may be aware, the television show that I do on Bloomberg TV and MSNBC called With All Due Respect is a like, straightforward ripoff of Pardon the Interruption. Um, and Tony was, of course, quick to note that um, and try to claim some royalties. Uh, and instead, I traded him the ability to be to do a cameo on our show. But the reason I raise this issue is because here's Tony Kornheiser, ESPN, you know, a big sports figure in sports journalism, and all Tony wants to talk about is politics. And in particular, what he wants to talk about is the Democratic-Republican face-off between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton on Monday night at Hofstra, the first, bi- the first debate of the general election, the first of three. Um, and it, it's interesting to me in this, in this sense is that the, unlike almost every other political event we cover, Um, And certainly all the nomination fight debates, um, which really are, even though they had big, huge ratings by relative measures, they had big debate, big ratings. They still are basically watched those nomination fight debates. They're basically watched by politics junkies. There's not there. They don't penetrate the broader culture. But when you get to the general election and you have a debate like the one between Clinton and Trump on Monday night that reached 85 million people on television, which is uh, the largest debate audience in history. You're talking about something that permeates the broader culture. And so it's not just people in the media, in political media, uh, who are talking about this debate. You have people in sports media talking about this debate. You have people in all walks of life talking about, you know, people on TMZ, people at MTV, people, you know, in the sports, as I say, in the sports world, the entertainment world, um, in the music world. Everybody's talking about the debate. So we're going to talk about that today and we're going to bring in uh, as a guest a little later in the show someone who's a huge 
uh, figure in the world of uh, one aspect of the world of culture, that aspect being, or that element being uh, the Broadway piece of it, uh, one of the stars of Hamilton, which is, of course, the you know signature Broadway musical show, um, epic production that's been running here for more than a year now in New York City. Um, and that one of the stars of that show is a guy named Rory O'Malley, who plays King George. He's not the first King George who's played in Hamilton, but he is the most recent one. He also previously was in Book of Mormon. So um, we want to get Rory in here today to talk about what he saw at the debate, kind of give a thespian's view of what is clearly an event that has political consequence, but also has a lot of performance elements to it. And also talk to him a little bit about the fact that he recently uh, partook in uh, the singing of a gestational musical about Donald Trump. Um, written by, <laughs> just to close all the loops and circles, my, fr- <laughs> my friend Joe Scarborough at Morning Joe, who's trying to mount a show about Trump. He hired Rory to sing on like a, a kind of a, a like a not an audition tape, but on a kind of preview tape to try to get that show up and running. He went and hired Rory O'Malley to sing all the Trump parts. So I want to ask Rory about that too. Will, what's on your mind at this point? I, you, you cover politics and culture for our uh, operation for Bloomberg Politics. I know you were watching the debate. So give me your quick perspective, or not even so quick. Just tell me what you thought about the debate and what you saw unfold on Monday night. Yeah, it was fun. I actually uh, felt the best way for me to cover this. I went out and watched it in public. I was in Athens. I did not cover it. I was out at the debate, but I was in Athens, Georgia, which is where I live. And I went to the Georgia Theater downtown, which, like a lot of places, had a big public event about it. Like they put they put it on the big screen. They, they didn't cancel any shows. They kept the bars open, which were very needed, <laughs> I think, for everybody that was there. But yeah, it became, and there were about, I would say, 1,100 people there. Like it was jam packed for people to watch that thing. You, there was really nowhere to move in there. And so, and to me, you know, to me, one of the most fun things about it, you know, Jonathan Mahler wrote a really smart piece for the New York Times where he actually watched the debate, the debate on mute. He yeah, actually did not want right. listen to it at all, and it was very clear. One of the one of the best parts about his piece is it really gets across the fact that you could tell exactly what was happening, <laughs> you, right. and you could tell. And I really felt like you saw that. You know, much has been made about like Trump's sniffling and the drinking of the water and all of that. But for me, you know, the, I found the body language aspect of it much more fascinating when it came to Hillary. Like Hillary was still. Like, I don't know if Trump really moved as much as it seemed, but she didn't. Like, she was very still. She was very postured. She had had very good posture, and she was, like, prepared and ready in a way that I think spoke to— you know, as Mahler wrote in his piece, you could tell who had prepped for this and who had not prepped for this, even if you couldn't hear what they were saying. And so for me, that was one of the more fascinating uh, things about it. But again, you know, I think one thing the debate reminded, too, is— how different, as, as has been mentioned, how different this is than being on stage with 17 people where you just have to pop in. Right. You know, one of the, I remember during the Republican debates, people remember obviously the little, Mar- the little Marco stuff and all of that. But for me, I always thought it was noteworthy how he would disappear. Trump. For like large yeah. sections, yeah, Trump would Trump would disappear for large sections of the debate when it was, and it was fine because you could barely, you know, he, for a guy that's so good at kind of like reading a room, he recognized, oh, here's going to be the stuff that I either don't have a lot to contribute on, or I can let them fight with each other about. Right. I can hide, and it was fascinating here how impossible it was for him to do that. You know, I, the first thing I, I will note in 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 reply is the fact that you were at a bar in Athens, Georgia, with like 1,100 people, um, mm-hmm. which which is watching in a public space with that number of people in. A jam bar in not like the biggest city in America, and and to me, 
that speaks of something kind of you know fascinating to my earlier point, which is that's like a Super Bowl kind of crowd, right? Yeah. That's like yeah. the kind of like if you went out to watch the Super Bowl at a bar in Athens, Georgia, you might run into 1,100 people. But it's hard to think of any other event where that many people would go out into a public space and watch the event unfold. And God knows if it's happening in Athens, Georgia, it's happening you know in towns of that size and smaller and larger all over the country. So that kind of speaks to the to the to the just the breadth of reach that the event had, again, now manifest and, and proven by the ratings. One of the things that is and was an unspoken thing going into the debate that goes to your point about um, watching it with the sound off and, and what one discerned from that was that, you know, the storyline of sick Hillary had been, you know, out in the world for a long time. The Republicans and people on the right have been claiming for, you know, months that, you know, she has some kind of cognitive disorder. She has a neurological disorder. She's got Parkinson's. She's got some somehow she's frail and ill. And Trump, of course, had been kind of trying to amp that up by referring constantly to her stamina. Does she have the stamina to be president? Of course, as we all know, Trump is two years older than Hillary Clinton or a year and a half older or so. So they're both, you know, um, neither one of them is a spring chicken by any means. But that had been out there for a while. Then, of course, she had her bout of pneumonia, which took her off the campaign trail for a few days and raised the question of Hillary's health in a kind of public and straightforward way. Not when I say straightforward, I don't mean it's simple, but I mean it was like surfaced in a very explicit way. So here we get to the debate. And for 85 million people, many of whom have not really been tuned into politics at all until that moment, they suddenly look up. And one of the things in the back of all of their minds is, well, is she sick? Is she not sick? Is she strong? Is she composed? You know, like you're they're they're reading that body language, I think, consciously or unconsciously. And so I think one of the things that the first big win for Hillary Clinton was, in fact, that she looked so robust. Right. She you know, your point was that she, you know, stood ramrod straight and was kind of uh, understands the nature of how the body relates to the podium and what that image looks like, especially in the split in the split screen context. But I think the fact that she looked great, I mean, she just looked good, right? She was, she looked hale and hearty. Um, she looked uh, happy. She looked confident. She didn't seem at all weak or at all frail. And not that I expected her to, but I think that affect was really important given the background narrative that had been out there now for some number of weeks or months, depending on what media sources you listen to or look at. And then you've got Trump, who your point, I think, is right that he often would fade in Republican debates and it didn't sort of get noticed or didn't get remarked upon all that much. But suddenly in this debate, he seemed like the one who lacked stamina. Again, whether you watch with the sound off or the sound on, he came out very strong in the debate. And again, whether you agree with him or don't agree with him, he was quite good for the first 15 or 20 minutes. But the deeper you got into the debate, the more that he seemed both physically and intellectually to flag. And the answers got more incoherent. The answers got more rambly. And his posture became more, I thought, he looked like he was tired. So it was kind of a powerful thing to hear, to see the woman who is supposed to be the frail one, by some people's estimation, looking so strong, confident, and composed. And the big, blustery guy who's supposed to be kind of this marvel, who eats junk food all the time, um, is 70 years old, but doesn't really look his age, and who's out there and is this kind of this human tornado, suddenly kind of withered and shrinking in some ways in, before your eyes on the, on the stage. And I think in some ways that's almost one of the most powerful takeaways from the whole debate beyond anything anybody said was just the contrasting images of the two. Yeah, and you just saw, you know, a large part of this too is, listen, Hillary 
we've all discussed much about how Hillary came out with this strategy and, and Trump didn't prep that much. But to me, part of it, too, was there are times where even Trump not prepped, not really ready, uh, not, you know, to kind of studying at the last, not really studying or kind of cr- not even cramming at the last minute. There are still times that Trump, who, after all, is a television animal and is an argumentative kind of right. presence, m- clearly passed up obvious opportunities to go after. And I think that was because of the sandwich, the stuff that I think if it would have happened in the first, first 15, 20 minutes of the debate, I think he might've taken that, but I think that was, that was even more of it. Not only did he look a little bit more exhausted, but you could tell that he was not sharp in a way that even like whatever your thoughts about him, whether you think he should have prepped more or whatever your thoughts about his intellectual prowess, there is a, he just wasn't sharp in a way, not just in what he was saying, but going after uh, really what she was saying. And I think, you know, it's funny, so much of this, uh, particularly with the Republican debates, there was this idea that, you know, this isn't a debate, this is a freak show, Trump is turning this into reality television and so on. I will say I felt like the first uh, debate was a nice little endorsement of the good old traditional political debates and that it was not turned into a reality show. And in fact, all the things that all the the old devices uh, that Trump would be able to fall back on. In, in a, on a reality show or in, in, in that kind of debate, he was, not a, in, he was not able to do that because this is an actual political debate and all of the things that he usually does to distract or to move on from or to attack, just even the format wasn't there for him. Right. It's interesting to me. I think all of that's true. I think it's also the case that it's interesting given that Trump is like one of the most media savvy candidates I've ever encountered. And he does look at his staging, at the interviews he does. He looks at it like a television producer in a lot of respects. But he didn't seem to have that about him uh, on Monday night. Like I say, the split screen really favored her. She seemed very aware of the fact that she was on camera all the time. He did not seem nearly as aware of that as he should have and as good prep would have told him to, but in fact, told him to be aware, but also that his sort of producer's background would have, should have told him to be aware. You know, uh, the, the thing you did, Will, is interesting that you watched with the sound off because that is a thing that um, in the world of political strategists, there's one particular guy I'm thinking of, Alex Castellanos, who's a Republican strategist who says he always thinks you should watch all the debates always with the sound off because it's really powerful and important to do that. I think, you know, the thing that people don't understand is just how hard these things are to do and just how much pressure there is. I mean, debates are always, if you're in the room, um, which if you ever get a chance to be in a room for one of these things, you really should take it because it's not the right way to watch a debate in the context of how the, the, the broad American public will see it. That's better to watch on TV. But from the standpoint of understanding just the pressure these people are under, you go into, you sit in a room for a presidential debate, and I've done it a couple times, the, the, the pressure is so intense and there's such a lot, the stakes are so high and both of the candidates, however experienced they are, you know, Hillary Clinton has done a lot of one-on-one debates. Trump has done none. But very rarely have they ever had to stand one-on-one for 90 minutes straight without a bathroom break, without any kind of relief from, from commercials, um, without any note cards, o- opposite a member of the opposite party, and do this thing in front of a gigantic audience, whether that's 40 million, 70 million, or in this case, 85 million people. It's really hard. And to, to take it lightly and think that you can cruise through, which, you know, when, the, when we were reading these reports about Trump's debate prep not being very organized, I, I generally am very skeptical about what you read in the press about debate prep. Having done a couple books about this, there's always an incredible story that's different from the public story at the time. There's a much deeper story, and there's always a lot of things going on that reporters in real time don't know about. But I just assumed there was no way that Trump could be doing as little prep as he seemed to be doing if you read the public news accounts. But watching him, 
on Monday night made me think, you know, actually, he really did no prep whatsoever. And the thing about debates, and this is, goes to one of your points about his level of preparation and a bigger, broader point here about not just about stagecraft, but about how you actually win a debate, is that a thing that Steve Schmidt, the Republican strategist and John McCain's campaign manager, um, once said to me, which is that debates are not about talking, they're about listening. And your, your job in a debate is you're trying to press a case on offense and you're trying to also defend, defend yourself on points of vulnerability. So you're in, when you're on defense, your job is to have a clean, crisp, quick answer to whatever the issue is that you're being attacked on and then to get out of that topic as quickly as possible and onto something else where you're on solider footing. And when you're on offense, you need to be listening for the moment when you can take hold of the debate yourself and say, I don't really care what the topic is that I'm supposed to be talking about. I don't care what the moderator wants to talk about. I'm going to now flip this thing around and find the opening where I can go in on my opponent and try to get that you know, my opponent on defense. She did that masterfully, I thought, all night long. And part of the reason why she won the debate in, in, in every way, I think, you know, she got, I think, about 85 percent of her plan accomplished and he got about 15 percent of his plan accomplished, like what they were aiming to try to do. But she brilliantly, after the first like 15 minutes of the debate, when he was doing quite well on questions of trade and on questions of change, she found a way to drop the thing in about him receiving $15 million in loans from his father to get him started in business. And that at that moment, the, the, the dynamic in the debate and the temperature of the debate shifted. And you could see he was the first time where he was baited into getting off of his game plan. And instead of making doing the quick defense and pivot or letting things go, he went, chased the rabbit deep into the weeds. And he did it over and over and over again. And this is a, as much about, again, about preparation, but also understanding kind of what the kind of geography of the debate stage is and, and what the geography of the conversation is and how to be in control of it rather than letting it control you. And that's, I think, one of his fundamental failings in this debate is was partly a performance at the level of like thespianism, but also performance at the level of executing a plan and being really, really focused and understanding what's required in these circumstances to score the points you need to score and deflect the points that you need to deflect. Yeah, you know, and two things on that. One is much has been made about Trump's interruptions. I think we've seen the supercut of all of his interruptions right. of Hillary. And I think obviously part of that is, you know, Trump being Trump. And, and I think I think women has had a very specific response uh, to having a man do that. But I also think part of it was because like you don't interrupt like that if you feel like I, I, I'm, I've got a plan here and I'm going to get to something. You interrupt like that because you're just reacting to something in the exact moment. Right. But he just says no and nope, that's not true or so on. And it's just to go in that, but then just to, I almost feel like he just needed to butt in because that was the that was almost his strategy all along was to be able to talk out over and bray, which I think speaks. We haven't really talked about Lester Holt, but I right. actually feel like he did a very good job yeah. specifically for that reason. He let them fight it out until it started to dissolve into chaos, and then he still was able to follow up in the other ways. And this this is my my second point on this and. And this maybe leads us forward. These things that we're talking about that Trump 
did not do well in this debate. They seem like something that you can make him aware of. Right. And maybe if he decides to prep a little bit more, he might be more alert to those things. But they also seem, frankly, pretty inherent to the personality yep. of Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. don't strike me as things that, like, if he so if they sit him down and say, okay, here's what you did, try not to do that again, he does not, we have not seen any evidence uh, at, at all in this, watching him every single day for a year and a half like we've been doing now, that he is a guy that's like, oh, I won't do that this time. It feels like just kind of who he is. Right, it's funny, amid all of the excuses that he was making yesterday, and again, you can read a lot into how candidates are the following day to know who won. She was confident and buoyant and energetic and taking a victory lap. He was making excuses, blaming his microphone, blaming the moderator. You know, that's a, the sign of, of someone who's implicitly admitting that they haven't done very well. He said last night on stage this thing that I thought was genuine and true and points to part of why he did not do that well. And that is he said this thing about how he approached the debate by trying to kind of kind of tune out the audience and tune out the fact that 85 million people were watching and conduct the debate as if he were speaking to his family. And that is a huge mistake, right? Because yeah. anybody, as you were sitting in your home right now, Will, with your parents and others, uh, anybody who thinks about what the dynamics are around their kitchen table um, understands that, like, you shouldn't be having a debate. You shouldn't be thinking like you're talking to your family when you're, in fact, trying to talk to 85 million people. There's, you know, the, 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 that is a, especially if you're someone like Donald Trump who one imagines, I've not ever sat at a family dinner table with Mr. Trump, but one <laughs> imagines that he's maybe kind of a domineering Potter familias. Yes, yes. That is not necessarily um, the way, I mean, perhaps the way that he speaks to Melania is not the way that he should speak to Hillary Clinton. And it brings us to a broader issue about that really goes, I think, in a in the deepest, broadest sense to our, our this thing that you and I talk about on this podcast, which is where politics intersects with culture, right? It, it's, it's the fact that so as a matter of, of debate performance, Hillary Clinton waited all night and she couldn't figure out a way to talk about Miss Universe, about Miss Machado. Um, and she finally found a way to get it in at the end of the debate. Um, and she uh, hammered Trump for the way that he talk, has spoken about women in the past and particularly about this woman who he has fat shamed and, and said kind of horrible things about, right? Trump managed to not really rise to the bait, although he did mention Rosie O'Donnell for no good reason in responding <laughs> right. to that. But then the next morning, he gets on Fox and Friends and attacks the woman again, right? So now we are in the midst of a conversation that is going to play out all week because Trump has thrown fuel on the fire by doubling down in some sense on a thing that I can't imagine there's any possible scenario in which it's a winning strategy because, uh, you know... I, I don't know a woman, um, young or old, brown, black, white, Republican, Democrat, independent. I don't know a woman who approves of the idea of a big, powerful man saying that a woman is another a woman who's younger or even the same age and way less powerful than he is uh, is fat. It just doesn't work. That's not going to get you anywhere. No. And the reason I'm interested in this in, beyond the media and political dynamics is that we're now into this realm where the reason this story has so much traction, I think, is because we now are in the realm of mass culture and, and, and how people live their lives, right? We can talk about Iraq. We can talk about Vladimir Putin. We can talk about Trump's taxes. We can talk about a lot of things, and they're all relevant points. But when you're having a conversation that goes to body image, uh, eating disorders, uh, struggles with weight and weight loss, uh, bullying, 
shaming, you're talking now the language of just how people live, not anything abstract, not anything to do with politics, not anything to do with ideology. But those things have deep, deep, deep resonance in the culture. And when you get on the wrong side of one of those debates, even in, you know, in our common everyday lives, you can find yourself in pretty deep trouble. If you're a Republican or Democratic presidential nominee and you are attacking a private citizen on issues where there is such deep emotional and psychological reaction, you know, uh, resonance, I think you are in really, really dangerous territory because it is something that everybody relates to in a really profound, emotional, visceral way. I'm not trying to say that I think Donald Trump has now lost the election because of what he did by any means, because I don't think that's true. But I do think this story is super dangerous for him in the way that attacking the Khan family, attacking Judge Curiel, attacking any private citizen is dangerous, but even more so because of the issues at stake. Yeah, you know, that this is this stuff tends to get rolling on you. Is probably the best way to put that. Like, like anyone, listen, anyone that works in any sort of public realm at all is always aware of certain of certain things to be careful about, <laughs> and and particularly when you're talking about about private citizens like that. It's funny. We've spent a long time in this election saying, okay, well, this is the thing that gets Trump, and this is the thing that gets Trump. I think I remember talking with my editor at Bloomberg when he made the McCain comments. We were like, oh, well, you know, we were having fun covering this Trump thing, but it's obviously over now. And right. and so, like, we've had those things. But you're right. This is not about – like, maybe a lot of people – you know, I mean, I think everybody respects John McCain, but he's also a politician, and therefore he's someone that you can comfortably be against right. and grouse about. And when when you're coming after someone like her, you know, remember also she, you know, she is uh, the Miss Universe Machado. She is actually also from the reality television world. She actually was on uh, on 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 their version of Big Brother. She was married to Bobby Abreu, the former Philadelphia Phillies player. Wow! Uh, like that, yeah. Who knew that? Like a, I know. And I actually found an old Deadspin post I wrote about them like 10 years ago. Uh, so like there are – this is someone that is comfortable with this world and is going to be able to hit him in the same way that he hits and was, is able to come across as immediately empathetic in a way that – Anyone that's in the public realm, because right. listen, I know she's been in the public realm because she's been on this reality show. Most people think of her as a private citizen, and that right. I think you're right is going to cause him a lot of trouble. She's not a politician, and she did not sign up for this duty. So uh, I'm John Heilman here, and you are? I'm Will Leach. Oh, my God. It's John Heilman and Will Leach together again here on Culture Caucus, Bloomberg Politics podcast about the intersection of politics and culture. We are talking about the first presidential debate and how it intersects with the wider culture and also as a matter of performance and performance art. And for that purpose, we will now transition from our early conversation, which involves just me and Will, and move into our second part of our conversation, which we invite a guest in. I think I believe I mentioned earlier in the podcast that we were going to be graced with the presence of a brilliant performer, one of the many bright lights who shines every night or eight, eight performances a week. On Hamil- in Hamilton on Broadway. That man is named Rory O'Malley. He plays King George. And after this break, we're going to have him on. So just stand by for one second, and here comes Rory. So we are back with the second half of the Culture Caucus Bloomberg Politics' podcast about the intersection of politics and culture, talking about the first debate. And now bringing into the studio here, sitting right across from me, is uh, Rory 
O'Malley. What's your middle name, Rory? James. Rory James O'Malley. What yeah. a good, what a good kind of like Anglo-Saxon kind yeah. of. Yeah, you know, that's very good. Irish Catholic. Grew up in the west side of Cleveland. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So Rory, um, as I've said now three times in this podcast, plays King George in Hamilton. And there are so many things I want to talk to you about, but I want to start by just asking you, you watched this first debate. On oh, night, yes. Because you are a political junkie. Yes. And you thought what? I was so nervous when it started. And really not because, not just because I wanted one person to do better than the other, which I have to admit I did, but because I know what it's like to step out on a stage and the amount of nerves that I have when it's 1,300 people in an audience, I can't wrap my head around walking onto a stage where 85 million people are watching and you don't know what's going to happen. I walk onto stages and I'm so nervous. I know exactly what's going to happen. I've rehearsed it many, many times and I'm still in an adrenaline rush that almost makes me nauseous. So how do you hold it together when you walk out on that stage? I have to say, like, it, it, the performer in me just has such empathy for, for politicians when they walk out into that kind of forum, no matter what their politics are. Right. So you're saying you, were, you felt you a little bit of empathy even for Donald Trump. No. But I, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I would say just in general, uh, you know, that I have I have a lot of respect. I think you were talking about it just before that I don't think people realize how difficult it is to do what these politicians do when it's when it's a presidential debate and how difficult it is to just talk and sound like a normal human being while still putting forward very wonky policy things. And the amount, the list, the list of things that everyone said Clinton had to accomplish, I was like, well, she's not going to be able to be, come across as likable. This isn't the view. It's a presidential debate behind a podium. And I have to say, like, I was wrong. She, this was the first time, I think that, you know, it's all about expectations, they say, for these debates. If there was one expectation that she really surpassed for me, it was being likable. Right. I, I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of people back home in Ohio who are not conservatives or not liberals, but they just don't like her. Right. Okay. And they watched this debate and they said, oh, I, I really liked her. I really thought that she was, uh, she looked wonderful. You know, things like that. Right. The, the, the conversations that I was having with people from back home in Ohio was, they were kind of surprising to me. And some people who were, were supporting her already, they came out of the closet and said, I wasn't really supporting her before because I wanted to, but now I want to. Right. So just put aside, I, I'll be obvious and clear to anyone listening to this, and, and I would say Broadway is a pretty democratic place. The performing arts are pretty democratic. It's a blue state up there sure. uh, at the Richard Rogers Theater. Not a lot of people in the Hamilton cast, I imagine, are big fans of Donald Trump. But And you were not. And you no, were, you were a, a clear Hillary Clinton supporter. So I want to ask you just put aside questions of ideology and put aside questions of like who you agree with because again that's clear of course and just like just evaluate the performances that each of them gave just bring the thespians eye to this and say i watched this debate here's what donald trump did well here's what he did poorly here's what hillary clinton did well here's what she did poorly as a matter of performance sure well i think that what you said about turning the volume off 
is really I'm going to do that. I didn't I didn't do it before. I'll go back to my DVR because yes, I'm that big of a political nerd. I will do this. When I talk to students in musical theater classes, whenever they show me audition material, the first thing I do is I tell them to do the song again and this time keep your hands at your sides and don't move. Stop fidgeting. You're trying to tell this story with a lot of movement and it's distracting from what you're saying. And when you only have a short period of time in an audition room, you don't want to distract the person who are trying to hire you with this extraneous movement and fidgeting and get your point across. You don't need anything more than your words and your intention. Hillary was the example of doing that perfectly and Donald Trump was a fidgeting mess. And really, by the end of the night, he was drowning in quicksand of Howard Stern, Rosie O'Donnell, and Sean Hannity. You know, it was... It, and, you know, I've been there. I have to say, like, I've been unprepared going on a stage. And I know what it feels like to be up in front of an audience, not of 85 million people, right. where you start swimming in your head looking for words to grab onto. Right. And he was looking he found Sean Hannity and he just kept saying that <laughs> over and over again. I mean, I thought he was going to leave the stage to go grab Sean from the other room. Right. So, you know, that, that'll happen in the next debate. Yeah. I, I I don't doubt it. Um without a doubt, there there are two performances. It, she really in terms of theater, she was the Broadway actor and he was the high school actor who thought he could make it on Broadway even though he's never taken a class. And what, I mean, did you think he did anything well? If you were, again, if you were brought in to be, and we're going to talk about your Trump the Musical, uh, your little Joe oh, Scarborough God. adventure a little bit, a little later in this uh, in this podcast, but if you were brought in, if they hired you and brought you in and you were willing to do it, which I, you probably wouldn't be, but if they brought you in and said, Rory, you got to help us coach Donald for the next debate, just just on, on again, on presentation issue, on presentation matters, you, what, did he do anything well that you would start with and say, okay, you did this well at the first debate. Now we got to work on this. Donald Trump does Donald Trump well, and nobody could teach that to anybody. And he has gotten as far as he's gotten because of that. Um, I, I would I would put him through my my musical theater audition class. I would say, you you look at Hillary, and when she's looking on that split screen at Donald Trump, she's rehearsed that. She's rehearsed that look, and there are many people who think that's ridiculous. Why would you? Ha well, that's how she's gotten to where she is. She's a woman in politics. And if you are going to prepare for an event that 85 million people are watching, you better rehearse the entire 90 minutes. Right. I would say to him that he needs to show himself to be able to stand still and not interrupt her. I think that I think that is very damaging to him. Right. I think that interrupting any presidential candidate is wrong, but especially when it's it's a woman, it comes across really chauvinistic and inappropriate. I want to turn you over to Will now for a few questions. Will, go fire away. Rory's waiting. Yeah, uh, well, I'm fascinated. The, the, the way that you described uh, the idea of walking out in front of 85 million people and not having the words is quite harrowing. <laughs> that really mm. feels terrible. And the way you describe it, it's fascinating because I have to confess, I've always thought, of debate as a sort of improv, 
you know, I, I, uh, Mike Perpiglia's movie, uh, Don't Think Twice, really gets very well into the head of what it's like to work in an improv. Right. I don't know if you've worked in improv before. Yes, yes. But, yeah, but like, you know, what that's like to almost have to construct the plane while you're in the air and having everybody watch you see all the seams. And that's a fascinating point. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the idea that it sounds like Trump was acting like he was going into an improv performance, whereas Hillary went in at the idea that she was doing something on Broadway. She was being, she was playing, she was in Hamilton and he was in Second City. That is so right. And I'll tell you why, because in the, when you're in improv and when you're first class in improv, you learn how to yes and. Mm -hmm. You say yes to your partner and you say, and now uh, I'll add this to the scene. So that's, that's basically the first rule in improv, you always say yes and something else. That's great for a primary debate when you can yes, you know, Marco Rubio and let's also build a wall. But you can't yes and to the opponent on the other side of the aisle. You that's why I just thought this is not going to be the same thing. And Donald Trump walked into this like he was going to be de debating a bunch of conservatives. That's why he brought up Sean Hannity 17 times. Um, I think that that is a really good point. But it's funny because I thought about Mike Birbiglia during this debate <laughs> because I've I've done some stand up in the past. I'm I'm more of a fan of stand up. And Mike Birbiglia is one of the one of the greatest. I uh, he, he tells a lot of stories. Right. And whenever you see a Mike Birbiglia show, it, he's telling a story and you feel like you're at the bar with him, like he's just talking to you. And I went and saw him at uh, downtown. He put out a tweet, said, hey, I'm working on some new stuff. And he, uh, it was like 20 to 30 people in an audience, and I got in. And I watched him off a sheet of paper tell all these jokes and these stories. Cut to a year later at uh, BAM in Brooklyn, right. watching him do the same thing, the same show. It was almost word for word, some of these stories. The talent that that stand-ups have is that they tell they've written every single line. They make people think that it's just coming off the top of their head. That is not true. That is their artistry. It's something that I don't have because I I'm you know rehearsed and somebody gave me the words and everyone knows I didn't come up with it. They know I worked on it. That is what Hillary did, and Donald Trump didn't know that that's what the game was. And so he definitely showed up for an improv event. She showed up to like slay him in Carnegie Hall. I'm curious too, because another aspect of this, as, as a performer, what it must be like, because I can't think of anything else. I write about sports a lot. I write about entertainment. I can't think of any other event outside of this where not only, forget all, just how many people are watching, but literally the camera is just on you the entire time. Right. Like it catches every every eye twitch, it captures every move. It, like obviously as a performer, you have to be very constantly aware of what your body's doing and where you're looking and what every single facial expression. I'm just trying to imagine as someone that's done so much performing, is there a way to possibly prepare, not just for, for a performance, but the idea that for 95 minutes, as it turned out, a hundred people are watching every single muscle movement that you make. Yeah, you you record yourself and you watch it. I mean, I, I look, I audition for things all the time where I have to record it and send it in. I definitely watch it. You know, like <laughs> I, you you have to see what you look like. And and 
I, I'm telling you, the most impressive thing to me was watching Hillary watch Donald while he was talking because it was a neutral, absolutely positive and commanding look that she, without a doubt, worked on. Without a doubt, she she discussed it. And uh, that's what goes into this job. That's what diplomacy is about. That's what... Uh, that's what she, when she said that she prepared for the debate and she prepared to be president, you know, I think that was the most important part of the debate. And yes, I of course, you know, I am her supporter. But I think that I could give a lot of credit to Donald Trump for knowing how to manipulate a moment to his advantage. He has done that in a spectacular fashion for a year and a half. He just didn't realize this is a different game. The audience has been instructed to stay silent. So your jokes are going to fall flat. And when, a, they, when you have jokes that fall flat in the room, that really, it, it, to the 85 million at home, they're like, oh, he bombed. Right, and they see you. you it's like you've gotten a punch in the gut. Exactly. And you sort of crumple when the things fall flat. And the next day, for him to say, oh, my microphone in the room wasn't working, that's literally his version of, is this thing on? You know, like that is that is crazy town to me that he literally said that. Who cares? He, he literally was like, well, the audience in the room wasn't laughing enough at my jokes. Well, this isn't a joke. This is the most important night in American politics in decades. Even for, you know, people who've done a lot of television, a lot of film. There's literally no performance where you're in close-up for 95 minutes straight. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is a great wide-shot performer in some ways, right? You go sure. to these rallies, and he command, he's a big guy. He's got physical charisma. He can command the stage. And in a setting where there's 15,000, 10,000, 8,000 people around him, you watch him work that room. It's a rock concert. And rock concerts are wide shots, you know? Right. You see U2, the Rolling Stones, whatever. They're out there, and they command the stage in a way. Television and film are different, and, and the close-up is a different medium. Much more intimate. Right. And 95 minutes straight. I mean, not there were some wide shots at the debate, but you are effectively, you could be in close-up at any moment for 95 minutes straight. So you've got that thing of, what's my face look like in close-up for 95 minutes straight? Man, that would be a psychologically, I don't care how much you film yourself, that would, be a, that would be an emotionally, psychologically terrifying prospect. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And, you know, Donald Trump is a big ham. So am I. You know, I'm on a big Broadway stage and you've seen me in Hamilton. I'm hamming it up. You know, I'm having a good time. And uh, I, I think that it would be excruciating for me to think that for 90 minutes, every single twitch, every single move was being looked at and scrutinized by 85 million people or more because everybody talks about it, right. you know, for And they get replayed months, over and over again, right? Yeah, sure. So, the yeah, no, I, I, I would be totally consumed um, with my nerves. Um, and, and that's why I think that Hillary, she nailed it. You could you could uh, critique her for the her strategy of the night, of how she decided to go about it, but her execution was flawless of how she decided to do it. Go ahead, Will. Yeah, I think that's something to get lost, and this is maybe a good way to spin forward a little bit. When we all talked about, you know, when, when there were all those stories about how Trump's not really preparing that much, he's just going to kind of wing it. I think a lot of people, myself included, heard that as 
you know, we thought, oh, well, he's not studying up on policy enough or he's not really looking into uh, knowing all of his world leaders, all the stuff that Trump tends to, uh, even in interviews, kind of struggle to come to maybe have a second or third answer for. The great joke from The Simpsons is I can answer your questions as long as there are zero follow-up questions. <laughs> and I think you see that a little bit from Trump in the interviews. But for me, what has been prof- kind of really smart about listening to you talk here is that is, seems almost even a small part of it. Like such a small part of right. the preparation. So when he, for him coming up next, particularly in something that's a town hall, that's a little bit different uh, kind of a debate uh, th- kind of thing. Is there a way to in the what week and a half that he has until then to possibly cram that? Not so much like policy papers. We think of the, the cramming in that way. But to just cram that kind of body control, it seems like it would be impossible to do even if he decided, yes, I absolutely have to do it. I think that he definitely could improve. Because he 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 needs to. So um, I, I think that yeah, if you just spend any amount of time understanding what the form is, how to best serve yourself in in the way that it's laid out, I, I think that uh, he will do better because of as what John brought up the wider shot. He's going to be able to move around a little bit, but he's not somebody who's taken a lot of questions. Um, at his rallies, if, right. I, if I'm not right. mistaken. And so I think that she's going to be able, just like she was able to bring up uh, Miss Universe and really put a human face on some of the stuff that he said. And I don't, you know, he didn't bring up anybody's names other than like famous people. Right. Um, I think that she's going to be able to connect with those people and their questions in a very sincere way that's going to benefit her. And I think that. If he's not having questions to him that are people from his rally, it's going to be a challenge for him. Because if he comes across, if somebody challenges him in an audience who's a real person and he comes at them, what's that going to look like? Just just to be clear, you know, the second debate, which takes place um, in the middle of the month in uh, in St. Louis, is a, is traditionally the town hall format, right? right? So there are a couple things about this that are complicated. One is... Again, you know, Trump not only did not do mock debates, which are relatively easy to prep for, right? You set up two podiums and you stand with someone who plays the other person. Right. He, he didn't do that. These debate, this next debate is a debate that it passed almost always in, in recent decades. The presidential campaigns to prep for them, they will build a replica of the set. They will populate the, 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 the audience with fake voters. Right. And they will go and do polling of the local community to find out what's on the local community's mind. Then they will plant those questions with their stand-ins for the voters. And you will watch in the exact perfect replica of the space so that it's like choreographed and you get used to both the interaction with the audience, what the questions might be from that audience because you know like in suburban St. Louis, this is the issues that people care about most. And then that physical thing of walking out from behind your podium, going to talk to the person directly. It's its even more theatrical, right? It's not as constricted, right. but it's more, there's more space to occupy. There's more variables. And on top of that, you've got two moderators, one of whom Trump thinks hates him, Anderson Cooper, right. who he believes is like a liberal stooge and is a plant. So his, his back will be up already just have to be out there with Anderson Cooper and then to have to be dealing with these voters in a one-on-one And he way. has to be careful because moms love Anderson Cooper. Right. Okay. <laughs> I just got to <laughs> tell you, Donald. Um, so it's a, just a huge challenge. And you've lost the first debate. So the pressure's on to win. All of that together, I don't, you know, 
I don't know whether that means Trump is doomed. I won't never say anything like that. But it really raises the stakes for his prep. Absolutely. And because there's so many more opportunities for him to look unpresidential. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is that now, you know, as everyone always says, the expectations are the biggest thing. I think the expectations for him have gone even lower. So he has an even lower bar to clear now. And uh, the bar always goes higher for Hillary. Right. She's always, it's its never going to get any lower. It will always go higher for her. And that's just the way it is. What would you say, you've said a lot of really nice things about her performance. Uh, let me flip the question around that I asked before, which is obviously her performance was not perfect, right? Sure. So as not. a matter of performance, again, what mm. would you, if you were again asked to come in and say, hey, Hillary, you did really great in this first debate, but there are a few things you could work on. What would you say were those things? I would say what you brought up earlier, that a debate is about listening. And she wasn't listening to some of the things that he said. I think that if she was able to hear when she said that, uh, you know, he benefited from the recession and he said that's business. Instead, she kept going with her thought. It really would have been effective if she could have said, well, that's not business to most people. That that recession ruined people's lives. If he if when he said it was smart that he doesn't pay federal taxes, if she was able in the moment to say, actually, no, Donald, we all pay our taxes and we're not dumb, we're good citizens. If she was able to take that moment, which clearly would have been impromptu and because he, you know, gave it to her, it would have been, uh, you know, it's not an oops moment, but it's kind of close to that, you know, and it's even harder because more hard hitting because she would have been the one who delivered it to him. But I think that... Um, <laughs> You know, if I'm given a line, if I'm given a monologue and somebody's heckling me from the audience, basically, even if they're like hurting themselves or making themselves look silly, it's hard for me to stop with my train of thought just to pay attention to them. And I think that she made a conscience, conscious decision to not uh, go for every single thing she could with him, because at the end of the day, it was about looking presidential compared to him drowning in quicksand of Howard Stern, Sean Hannity, and Rosie O'Donnell. The quicksand of his own making. Will, you, yes. got, one, you got one last question for Rory here, Will, before I move on to Donald Trump the musical with him? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, all questions I have are Donald Trump the musical related, so I'm going to go ahead and just hand it over to you. <laughs> okay. So, um, there, an article appeared of recently in GQ magazine, yeah. um, which was a profile of my friend um, Joe Scarborough, uh, whose show Morning Joe I appear on and have appeared on with some frequency for now almost eight years. Um, and this, one of the revelations in the article, and it was a revelation that Joe wanted to make, was yes. that he has written a musical, um, right. Trump the Musical, yeah. and is now trying to get it mounted on Broadway with the help of Ari Emanuel and some other uh, powerful people looking for produ- looking for people to to pay for it and get it up on the stage and in the process of doing that he wrote all these songs and then decided you know hey to get the financing for this and get this going here it'd be good to have someone actually who can sing sing the songs and he turned to you so tell me the story of how this came to you and right. what it was like to do it well uh do you know jordan roth I do. On the, yeah he he contacted me and said that joe had written uh, a song about donald trump and uh would I be up for recording with some other people 
um, to do a demo. And I was like, yeah, sure. It's not like a campaign song <laughs> for him, right? right? right sure. And uh, as soon as I saw the lyrics, realized that it was not, definitely <laughs> not. Um, yeah, and so I just got together with some of the, some other people were in the room, some some really fun folks, and we just went through and made a demo for, for him. I don't know what's going to happen with it. But I it mean, was just one song. You've, yeah. You sung just yeah. one. I know he's written, I believe, the entire musical, but you've sung, wow. just, you've sung just one song. That's right. And it was in the voice yeah. of Trump. You were playing Trump. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't. Uh... I mean, I know it's satire, but you yeah. were supposed to be singing as the Trump character. Yes. Yes, I was. And how comfortable were you with that? I know it was it's it's satire. Right. So it's making never... fun of him on some level. But right. Right. Um, You know, I had never uh, attempted that before. So it was it was a lot of fun. I think that everybody in the country now has their own Trump impression. Right. Uh, yeah, it was it was fun. It's also interesting because like the next day there was a Twitter war between Joe and Trump, and I was like, oh my gosh, what if I what? walked into? You know, I've done a lot of <laughs> demos in my life where you just show up to the studio, right. it, nobody hears about it ever again. So it was uh, it was interesting. I wish him a lot of luck, right? Because it's it's really hard to write a musical. Who do you think does a good Trump imitation among the among people in popular culture who do them now? Who's good? You think? Oh, um, I think Taryn Killam was really great on SNL. And, uh, you know, SNL's always got to have a, a great one. So I'm, I'm excited to see. I think this Saturday is, is when it's coming back. And SNL is never right. better yeah, in the than fall, when it's the fall of an election. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think that. I think that everybody has a really good Donald Trump. Right. He's pretty. He's pretty easy to impersonate or characterize. It's funny because it's a question. Having done the book Game Change and then having seen the movie get made, much to our delight, uh, for by HBO, and seeing how um, Julianne Moore, who looks nothing like Sarah Palin, right. in real life, right. Um, when she was suggested among many actresses to play the Palin role, we all went, really, Julianne Moore? And then someone did like a little Photoshop thing and kind of, and we looked at it and said, oh, you know, that might work. Right. But she was incredible. You oh know, she God. was incredible as Palin. Yeah. So now we get asked all the time, you know, so, you know, is there going to be a, <laughs> is there going to be a movie on sure. the 2016 campaign? Who sure. will play Trump? Um, and, you know, one person who's lobbying for it, publicly lobbying for it, is Brian Cranston, who says oh, he really? wants, who wants to play Trump. But I'm sitting here looking at you and thinking, oh, you know, Rory, you wouldn't ah. be bad. Oh, great. You wouldn't be bad. <laughs> great. I'll, t- I'll take it, John. Call, I'm, I'm just call my agent and uh, I'm, uh, I'll am i get my orange uh, pancake makeup out. I'm and... just uh, doing I have a high respect for your abilities as an actor. That's why I'm saying that. I think you could do a good Trump. And Trump's a great Thank character, you. right? He's a juicy character. Yes. As an acting challenge, that would be fun. Absolutely. I would love to be there to tell the story of how he lost the presidential election and <laughs> other than that yeah. if it's any other story i don't think i can take <laughs> right, it right right if it's president we're, we're doing the story of how trump became president yeah, that, you think that just, wouldn't be as appealing no no i couldn't tell that story it'd be too heartbreaking for me that's me that's my personal beliefs who else do you think could play him well oh, can you man. think of actors who immediately jump to mind where you think that would be a great trump you know i would say like john goodman i think that he, I think, he, well, I think he's an amazing actor, but he can really take on a character. And I think that every time you, what was so brilliant about Julianne Moore's performance was, is that there's a caricature that we're all aware of in in uh, the national media, but to really kind of peek behind that and see the human being. I mean, I remember while that was happening when she was chosen, and I was like, this is a movie. This is like, how is this happening? What right. is going on? So. 
Yeah, I, I mean, this is this election is going to be talked about. There's going to be a lot of people playing Donald Trump for decades, <laughs> yeah. um, whether we want to see it or not. Um, but yeah, I think John Goodman, or you know, a really a, a, a really seasoned actor, of course, Brian Cranston could pull it off. He can pull anything off. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, and then I'm going to let you go because I know you have to get over the Richard Rogers Theater and you start getting ready. Yes, getting your game face, getting on. my wig on, uh, getting your wig on. That's a lot of stuff you put on there to play uh, King George. How, just this part, you've been doing it for how many months now? It'll be six months this week. My on October 1st will be my 200th show. 200 shows. Yeah. And how many Book of Mormons did you do? 800. 800 Book of Mormons. So do you think you'll do that many at King, King George? I will be playing King George until they grab that scepter from my cold gay hands. <laughs> uh, I have to say, um, the, the, all of the actors who played King George over the ones that I have seen, and, and they're all they're all fantastic actors, yeah. and and uh, and and they you know and great singers, and you guys are all amazing. So it's been an incredible run who, of people who played the part, but. Um, to anybody who has not had a chance to come to New York City and see Hamilton, obviously you should see it because it's one of the most amazing things ever created in the history of stage. <laughs> but there is no character and no performer who creates more delight than Rory O'Malley as Thank King you, George John. right now. I mean, having seen you do it twice or three times now, you are people just love the way you inhabit that role. And you seem to derive an extraordinary amount of joy from playing the part. Oh, just an unlimited amount of joy. And it's getting to be more and more. Usually doing a show can be taxing, but the audiences are just so excited to be there. And uh, I think especially because of this time, because it's this election, being the king and coming out and saying, are they going to keep on replacing whoever's in charge? If so, who's next? Right. And when Hillary Clinton was in the audience that night, that line, which, you know, gets a giggle, literally got applause. Right. You know, because they're like, <laughs> we think we know. Right. And, uh, you know, when I, at the end of that of that song, say, President John Adams, good, good luck. luck. Yeah. You know, I know there, there are people on both sides of the aisle <laughs> who are thinking, oh, yeah, that's kind of a metaphor for her or him, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be very interesting as November 8th approaches to be playing this role. And it's also funny to be a guy saying like, um, what comes next? Good luck. Have fun. Right. You know, running a democracy. You'll be back. Yeah. Um, there's times where people <laughs> said like, oh, God, is King George III still haunting us and like taunting us with this election? Um, but I think that, you know, at the end of the day, this is kind of hard to deal with this election. Yeah. It's it's there's a lot of difficult stuff, but getting to be in a piece of art that reminds us that we went through a revolution for this right. Generations before us worked a lot harder and sacrificed a lot more than us having to deal with uh, hearing about this election. Right. We can do it. Yeah. We can we can put our uh, adult pants on and <laughs> make a decision that will keep our country going. Well, and no matter what the decision is, and again, I know a lot of Democrats feel like if Donald Trump becomes president, it will be apocalyptic and the world will end. Yes. But, you know, you think back to some of the things, some of which are portrayed on stage in the show. You know, Hamilton got shot in a duel right. know, by Vice President Burr. Right. Right. The Vice President of the United States went out and shot a guy dead. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, a lot of crazy shit's happening in our election right now. But the reality is, like, you know, at least no one's getting shot. Yeah. You know, so far. So far, right, right, right. So Finger, yes. fingers, fingers yeah. crossed. No, no, right? it's it's absolutely been reassuring to me 
to remember that, yes, this is difficult. Yes, there are things about this election and everything, all the language being used that is unacceptable. But I think our standards have risen and they continue to rise. And hopefully we're forming a more perfect union. Oh, and that is just the perfect way to end. Um, the perf- Forming a more perfect union, bringing a imperfect podcast to a perfect end. Um, <laughs> Rory O'Malley, you were great. Thank you for coming in and doing this. Uh, Will, Le- Will Leach, how are you? Are you? Did you enjoy talking to Rory? Oh, for crying out loud! I've I, remember. Uh, some, I'm in Athens, Georgia. I haven't even got to see Hamilton, so I, I'm just I'm I'm just I feel like this is as close as I'm going to come and the next best thing. Well, here's the thing: if the Cardinals win the World Series, you, I will not take you to see Hamilton because <laughs> that will be enough for you. But <laughs> if, if this year. but if the Cardinals fall, God willing, they don't even make the playoffs, or if they are beaten by one of the many superior teams that will be in the playoffs, I will, as a consolation prize, I will take you to Hamilton and introduce you to this great man, Rory O'Malley. How you, you, you good I, for that? I can't wait. Can't wait to meet you, Will. Awesome. Well, that, that, oh, I'm still rooting for the Cardinals, but just a little okay. bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, go Cardinals. Will, Will, Will can't help himself. He's ridiculous. Um, so anyway, I'm John Heilman and you're? Will Leach. And we are the guys who do the Culture Caucus podcast for Bloomberg Politics. Will, just remind people again as we, before we go, where you can find this podcast. The easiest way to find us is to subscribe in iTunes. And please, while you're there, give us a nice review. It helps people find the podcast. You can also find us on SoundCloud and, of course, BloombergPolitics.com. All right. For me and Will and Rory O'Malley, we say to you sayonara, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>